This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Martin Strong, in for Shane today on the Shift Daily Podcast. Housing expert Carolyn Weitzman tells us if the Canadian government is going about housing all wrong. The University of Ottawa adjunct professor helps us understand why Canada is in the midst of a housing crisis and if housing is a federal or provincial responsibility. Back to school season is here, but don't worry, Handy Andy Barrar has tips to make it fun and high-tech as possible. Are you okay with hiking? How about spinach? All of that on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. How's your housing situation? Because it's it's not really a hot take to say that housing is fast becoming out of reach for a lot of Canadians. Lack of supply, sky-high prices, and that's for both rentals and ownership, and add to that uh, rising interest rates. Uh, some places in this country are worse than others, but it really is a national crisis. So it raises the question, is it a federal government problem or do the solutions start with local governments? The Liberal government uh, has announced this uh, FHSA program. It's a first home savings account. It's like an RRSP. You're allowed to put a certain amount of money in it every year and you get a tax break immediately like you do with an RRSP. And the best part is when you take it out and if you use it to buy a first home, you still don't have to pay tax on that money. So that is something, but it seems a million miles away from solving the problem. And a lot of the typical thinking is that it's the local governments that are in charge of urban planning and zoning laws and all the red tape that comes with trying to get a permit, especially in cities like Toronto and Vancouver. So it's the local governments that are looked at to fix things. But our guest right now thinks we should be looking at it a little differently. Carolyn Weitzman is a professor at the University of Ottawa, and her take is that the buck stops with the feds, and it's the federal government that needs to, in her words, put on their big kid pants and get serious about solving the housing crisis in Canada. Ms. Weitzman is with us now. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Martin. Yeah. So even Prime Minister Trudeau is kind of deflecting his responsibility in all of this. At the end of July, he said, this is a quote, housing isn't a primary federal responsibility, unquote. So what what do you think of when you hear that quote? Well, uh, I think first off, why are you spending $89 billion on something that you don't consider to be a priority? And then I also say, why did you pass legislation in 2019 that said that uh, Canada is um, uh, committed to progressively realizing the right to housing? And that law, uh, the National Housing Strategy Act law, came out of a series of international uh, covenants that the Canada is signed to um, from the UN. So, um, you know, and I, I guess I'd, I'd say as well, Martin, um, if Canada was able to create over a million low-cost homes after World War II, when Canada wasn't as rich as it is now, why suddenly can't Canada do what it has been doing for almost 100 years off and on, which is housing policy? Yeah. And and this 
this crisis, and I, we'll just keep calling it a crisis because I think it is. I think it's it's just. I think you've written about this how it's a crisis, just like the climate is a crisis, and all all these other things we have to deal with. Um, the way it's being dealt with now, because we've been talking about it very seriously for for years now, but the way it's being handled and dealt with, do you think uh, things will just continue to get worse if something very major doesn't change? Well, definitely we need a new approach. And when I say that it's a federal government responsibility, it's also a responsibility of provincial governments and of local governments, but someone needs to be in charge of Team Canada and you would think that it would be the federal government. Um, there's various powers that superpowers in each level of government has. The federal government has taxation, which is incredibly important. Um, it has uh, infrastructure funding. It gets the most funding. It has the most powers and it can link that infrastructure funding. In fact, the federal government is talking about linking infrastructure funding with changes at the provincial and the municipal level. The provincial uh, level of government is responsible for uh, landlord-tenant law, and um, at least a third of Canadian households are renter households, and it's really important that renters not be subject to evictions, and about 6% of Canadian households were evicted between the 2016 and 2021 census, and two-thirds of those evictions were no fault of the tenant. Uh, so that's a really important power of the provincial government. Another important power of the provincial government is um, that there's no provincial government in Canada where welfare rates have kept pace with inflation or with housing costs since the 1990s, and that's one of the big sources of homelessness. Absolutely, the municipal government has also been derelict in many cases of its duties because it hasn't been uh, it hasn't changed exclusionary zoning policies. Um, in some cases, um, approvals processes are really sclerotic, they're really slow, but someone's got to be in charge. And uh, just as is the case with climate, just as is the case with healthcare, frankly, the federal government needs to um, provide some uh, steering. Right. So you, you don't see this as the federal government acting alone, sort of acting as, as a team captain. I, I wouldn't say that the federal government needs to take over local development decisions. But I would say that there's 737 municipalities in Canada that have over 5,000 people. Are you gonna have every one of those 737 municipalities having different consultation strategies about changing terribly out of date uh, zoning code, building code, et cetera? Or are you gonna take a look at the national building code and necessary changes that need to happen for the 21st century in order to get more energy efficiency and accessibility? And are you going to have a recommended national zoning code, which is something that Canada, as I say, is already talking about, and the US is already talking about, um, and the US has a similar three-tier system. Mm -hmm. And what do you put more priority on the the government building more homes or or legislating rules that are fairer to renters and home buyers or is it kind of a combination? both at the same time, Martin. I mean, definitely we have a housing shortage. Uh, in the 1970s, the early 1970s, we were building about 250, 260,000 homes per year. 
uh, over the last couple of years, we have increased, it used to be about 150, 160, we've increased it to 200,000 to 220 completions. That's lower than in the early 70s, which was 50 years ago, when Canada had half the population and had much larger households. So we absolutely have a housing shortage across Canada. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we have a housing shortage. Some of it does have to do with zoning. Some of it has to do with tax changes that happened in the early 1970s. And there were federal tax changes that um, like um, principal residence exemption for capital gains tax exemption and and um, uh, getting rid of some incentives for purpose-built rental, uh, for large developers of purpose-built rental. Um, all of those changes, and as I say, in many cases, these were federal changes, had an impact on housing becoming, um, you know, one of the most successful investments you can make, but um, uh, perhaps decreasing some of the funding available for new housing. And there seems to be um, sort of a disconnect because a lot of people do own homes and their homes have really gone up in value and that's a big part of their wealth and part of their retirement. So I guess that causes some problems because, our, I mean, uh, do a lot of these solutions mean that uh, home prices will will go down quite considerably? Well, it's a huge generational wealth divide that we really have to reckon with as a nation. There's a whole bunch of people, and I won't speak for you, Martin, but I'm 60 years old, I'm a boomer, and uh, I have indeed made a lot of money out of being a homeowner. But at the same time, my children who are 26 and 30 can't afford to buy a home at the age that I was able to buy my own home, which was 31. I just don't see my son who's 30 ever being able to find uh, buy a home near where he works in Ottawa. Um, so I've made out like a bandit, but um, kind of at the expense of my children. Um, and I think that that's problematic for a lot of people who, for instance, might want to be close to grandchildren in the future. So it's something that we have to we have to reckon with in um, now this was before I was buying a home, but in 1980, uh, not long before uh, we bought our first home, uh, home prices, the average home price was 2.5 times the average household income in Canada. Now across Canada, it's six point, no, sorry, 8.8 .8 times um, uh, uh, average income. So, you know, it's, you could have this first time homeowner's savings account, but in Toronto, it would take the average homeowner, not low income homeowner like I was um, at first, 27 years to save up for a down payment. So really, how much difference is this savings plan going to make in the scheme of things? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think you, you've said something very important. Uh, just as an overall thing, this divide between generally older Canadians who were lucky enough to buy property years ago, um, the divide is so vast now. I guess it's never been like that in Canadian history. And because uh, I, I know the pet store down the street from where I live, they offer a uh, senior's discount for anybody who's 55 and over. And I think in the city of Vancouver, anybody who's 55 and over generally probably 
they should give the discount to people who are 55 and younger, mm -hmm. it seems to me. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's something that, I mean, it's would you say that it's unsustainable? Well, you're, you're, you took the words right out of my mouth, Martin. <laughs> Absolutely. It is unsustainable. It just, year by year, we're seeing house price increases of 20%, rent increases of 20% per year, year on year. That's just not sustainable. It, it's got to um, be addressed somehow. And again, this is happening across the country. Sometimes we focus on Toronto or we focus on Vancouver, but it's, um, you know, Calgary used to think it didn't have as much of a problem. Montreal used to think it doesn't have as much of a problem. Halifax, holy geez, Halifax um, has a problem where it didn't used to have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. All those cities like Montreal, everybody used to say, oh, it's great. It's so cheap there. But uh, I know my I have a couple of kids who live there right now and uh, we've watched rents go up and up and up. So let's talk solution in, in your perfect world. What would be sort of the first area that needs to be addressed? Well, I know it sounds kind of technical, but from the 1940s to the 1990s, we had one definition of affordable housing. It was not paying more than 30% of um, your household's pre-tax income. And a lot of the programs, the very expensive programs of the national housing strategy have had definitions of affordability that bear no resemblance to what people who most need housing can pay. So I think um, returning to a simple definition of affordable housing and then saying, are you talking about low income people? Are you talking about moderate income people? Are you talking about median income people? And those kinds of, um, that kind of analysis might help inform housing uh, targets. Um, when you introduced me, you said I was a professor at the University of, Mel uh, of um, Ottawa, and indeed I'm an adjunct professor there, but I'm also the expert advisor to a project called Housing Assessment Resource Tools, which is actually based at UBC, and we have analyzed um, housing need across Canada for low-income people, for moderate-income people, for median-income people, what kind of rents are affordable or what kinds of housing costs are affordable. And that data is very easily available. It's something the CMHC used to do, and it really should be informing targets um, at the federal level, but also targets at the provincial level and at the municipal level. Right. So that sort of gives us an illustration of where we should be and and uh, where we are not. Um, but what what is something that you think the federal government needs to do today as a, as a policy to to create some control over this this runaway housing situation? Well, there's two sets of policies that the federal government could pursue. One of them is that for all of the money that's gone into the national housing strategy, there's really only one program. It's called the Rapid Housing Initiative that meets the needs of homeless people and very low income people. So if tomorrow the federal government said, we're actually going to treat seriously the fact that we haven't been investing in non-market housing since the 1990s and not coincidentally, homelessness has gone way up since the 1990s, that would make a big difference. And then um, they could also look at some of the taxation exemptions that started being rolled 
uh, away in the 1970s and you just see purpose-built rental construction falling off a cliff in the 1970s and they could increase um, the financial incentives for market um, providers, for, for uh, private developers to build purpose-built rental, but it would need to be linked as it was in the 60s and 70s with you know what's affordable for median income households and not just building you know one bedroom or studio apartments but also two and three bedroom apartments for young families so those are two things actually that the federal government could do starting tomorrow that would have a big impact on um, the supply of the right kind of housing in the right locations yeah. And you mentioned tax exemptions for homeowners, because when you sell your primary residence, you don't pay tax on it. And that is a, a huge, huge advantage if you're selling a home you've been in a long time, because that home has gone up a lot. Um, I mean, that that would be getting, first of all, how does that affect uh, the price of homes, that kind of uh, tax advantage? And if you did try to change that, uh, I would assume you'd get a lot of pushback. You would get a lot of pushback because I think you said earlier, Martin, that the um, federal government, and this is true of the federal government when it was liberal, when it was conservative, um, tends to treat home ownership as a retirement savings fund. And um, until you know we start having more secure retirement savings funds for uh, folks where you're investing in new technology or green technology or whatever, um, people are going to keep on investing in homes partly because they have such a great return. Uh, so um, it is, it has been a third rail issue in Canadian politics, this capital gains tax exemption that was brought in in 1972. It is undoubtedly one of the factors behind housing being treated as speculation instead of a place to live. Um, there are some things that the um, uh, that any level of government actually could do right now to look at the fact that 94% of tax exemptions go to homeowners and only 6% go to renters. Um, uh, uh, the federal government could allow municipalities, for instance, to have progressive property taxes. So property taxes at higher rates if your house is worth 3 million or 5 million or 10 million. That happens in a lot of other countries. Municipalities aren't allowed to do that. The one part exemption is BC that um, uses the education tax and, and has uh, progressive property tax um, uh, taxation. But the fact is that as I earn more money, I pay a higher proportion of income taxes, but my home can earn more money than my household and it's still being assessed on like 2016 values. So it's it's not fair. My house is doing making it a lot better than I am. Yeah, I know the feeling. Uh, yeah, so interesting. And and what about offshore investment? Uh, for example, in, in Vancouver, there's a lot of talk about uh, Chinese investors buying homes that they're not living in even. Um, is that uh, something that is is an, a, a big thing or do you think it's something that gets a lot of press and might just be a small part of this whole equation? I think it's overplayed a bit. It's a little bit of that hmm xenophobia that I worry about because I'm actually quite worried that high housing costs will lead to um, 
big changes in immigration uh, policy. Uh, absolutely, you can tax empty homes. Again, yeah. BC has done that fairly successfully. Um, but um, I think foreign investment is a little bit overstated. And frankly, we're going to need a lot of investment money if we're going to build a lot of affordable supplies. So I wouldn't necessarily say no to foreign investment money that vast majority of people who own homes for speculation are Canadians. Right. Uh, so interesting. And uh, I think it's a conversation that we need to have, even the tough parts of the conversation. Uh, Carolyn Weitzman is a adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. And uh, you're also doing work at UBC, as you mentioned, uh, on affordable housing. And uh, I, I thank you. And I hope this is the first of uh, many conversations we hear from you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Martin. This is The Shift Podcast. Andy, Andy Berard, how are you, Andy? I'm good, Martin. How are you doing? Awesome, awesome. And it's it feels kind of uh, like uh, it's almost sacrilegious to start talking about September and the fall and going back to school or going back to work, but uh, it's only a couple of weeks away. And yeah, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, you know, Martin, I was thinking, you know, like the the retailers try to get you to think about back to school in July, but. Yeah. Myself, I wait till about mid-August. So this is like the perfect time to start thinking about back to school because you're going to have to buy new products. You want to get everything set up. So now is the really time to start thinking of whether you're going to high school or college or maybe you're going back to school. This is the time to start thinking about it because this is when all the deals are going to be coming online. That's a good point. And if people go to handyandymedia.com, uh, you have kind of a cool blog with videos and lots of photos. It's a back-to-school desk makeover. And this is good for anybody, whether you're going to school or you're working at home a lot. Uh, it's a, a back-to-school desk makeover, which is kind of cool. Yeah, well, you know, whether you go to school or not, you're going to come home and do some kind of homework or maybe you're just working now. You work from home or maybe you work part-time remotely, you know, and when COVID happened, everyone kind of just had a makeshift desk, you know, had to kind of make things work. But now that we've gotten used to it, now is a really good time, especially with back to school, to kind of look at your desk setup and think about accessories that you could add that can enhance your, your entire workstation. Because it's not just a desk anymore. We're talking about workstations because we Zoom from there. We do our emails. Uh, we chat with friends and family even after we're finished working. So the one recommendation I just did this, Martin, is, you know, a lot of people use a second monitor with their laptop. You know, it's great. You get more real estate on uh, to, to yeah. work with. But one thing that I just did is I bought these. Um, they're basically monitor arms. So what you do is you attach them onto the side of your desk and then you can attach your monitors onto that. And so I have a... I'm, I'm one of those guys that has two monitors. So I have my laptop in the middle and then a monitor on each side. So that's a three monitor setup. And now that I have these monitor arms from a company called Kensington, which is probably one of my favorite tech 
brand accessories right now because of the quality products that they make. And so these arms, they're just rugged. Like they, they mean business and you can adjust them to the right angle that you want it. And then you have an Allen key and you can tighten it so that that monitor won't move. And what that does is it frees up the desk space underneath because you don't have that monitor stand on the desk. So you have more area to have all your papers or your coffee cups, or if you eat at your desk, you're just going to have more real estate while you work. Yeah, and then looking at the photo on handyandymedia.com, uh, that's a lot of real estate. That's a lot of screen space, which yes. kind of makes uh, life easier sometimes when you have a lot of different forms and you're trying to go from one thing to the next. I find that having the, the more screens that you have with your workstation, the better. Like if you're working, you could have just one dedicated screen on your emails. If you're constantly, you know, answering emails, you could have one with the word processor right in the middle, say on your laptop, but then you have a second screen where you're doing all your research and then you don't have to, you know, toggle through all the different tabs on that one single screen. I'll tell you what. Once you go two monitors, uh, Martin, it's hard to go back. Like when I just work on a single laptop now, it feels weird because I've had so much real estate. And I highly recommend people do this because one thing you'll notice if you buy a laptop right now, like right now is the best time of the year to get a laptop because of back to school. But what you'll notice is that all of these laptops are ultra thin and they don't have many ports on them. So what you have to do is get one of these USB-C hubs. And so it's one a single USB-C into your computer. And then from there, you can attach HDMI ports. You have extra USB-A ports, just a variety of different ports that you can attach from there. And that allows you to create this. So you can hook up your printer. You can hook up additional monitors or external hard drives without having those ports on there. And another thing that you'll see on that, that blog post I did, Martin, is I made a switch to a mechanical keyboard. And you probably remember these. Back in the day, you had these mechanical keyboards that made these really loud clicking noises. Right. Well, they were just they were great technology, but it was the it was the clicking that was annoying people, especially if you're in a busy office. All you could hear is click, click, click. But they've created these new mechanical keyboards that are ultra quiet. So you still have that nice tactile feeling of the keys, but it's not loud. And I made that switch, and I'm telling you, what a big difference it is when you have a quality keyboard, especially when you think about how much you're using it day after day. So I'm not exactly sure. Is a mechanical keyboard different from a, the typical keyboard that you see? Yeah. So if, if you remember, like, I'd say maybe in the late 80s, early 90s, that those were the keyboards that were out. They were all mechanical. They made that really kind of a click. So each key has its own kind of like circuit. It's a direct kind of circuit. Now the, the new ones are all like circuit boards. So they just kind of like have a little tap. So the, the, the technology under the hood is different, but from, uh, if you ask people that type, they love the feeling of a mechanical keyboard, that the way that the keys click. But like I said, it was the noise that they made. It would drive people nuts. Right. So the, the manufacturers realized, you know, people love these keyboards, the, the way that it feels, but we got to make them quieter. And so they did. And so Kensington, the same, same brand that made the monitor arms, they created this new keyboard. I tried it and I was like, wow, like it, it's quiet, like a traditional kind of keyboard, but it's got those mechanical clicks. And it is really, you, it's hard to explain. Like once you type with it, you realize the difference between all the new kind of keyboards that are out on the market. 
but the mechanical keyboards are where it's at. You have to trust me on this one. And now that they're ultra quiet, there's really no reason why you wouldn't want to make that investment, especially if you type a lot behind a computer. Well, I've just learned I need something. Uh, that I didn't know existed before because I have the same, I, I have a very flat keyboard at my yeah. home office and I kind of hate it. And I, that sounds, what you've described sounds great. Um, so, so let's talk about the typical kind of desk that people have, whether they're students or they're working at home. And uh, you mentioned the, the big uh, uh, triple monitors, which sound awesome, which would be yeah. very helpful. What do you think is the one thing, the mistake that people make with their home office and their desk setup? You know, Martin, the one thing that drives me nuts is the cable management or the lack ah, thereof yes, of, of the course. cable management. So what I did is I have like this really elaborate desk uh, in my home studio. And what I did is I use zip ties and double-sided tape. You can buy these little kind of tape things where it has a little hook on it. And then you can use zip ties and you can hide all your cables underneath your desk. And then what, what I recommend you do is if you can, screw the power bar onto the bottom of the desk so that and maybe drill a hole or run it from the behind the desk underneath. But you want to try to hide all those cables. And if you can, if you can put the power bar underneath, you could connect everything and just have the one cable that goes into the outlet. And then everything else is kind of underneath. And I always love to show people my desk. I'm like, look, where are the wires? You have to like bend over underneath. And then it's just like a sea of cables under there. But I've nicely organized it. So I really recommend people take the time for that cable management especially if you're going to set up your desk once and for all, you know, do a good job, make sure you have extra power bars and, and just organize your cables. It drives me nuts when I see people with messy desks uh, and cables all over the place that are tangled. And I'm looking at the picture that you have on your website. I don't see a mouse pad. Do you not use a mouse pad? Uh, you know what? It depends on the kind of mouse that you're using. Uh, the ones that I have that, you know, what's funny is if you look on that picture, Martin, that mouse that I have there is the same mouse that I bought 18 years ago. It was the first Bluetooth mouse that came on the market back in 2004. And it still works. And people are always wondering, like, you're the tech guy. You have all these gadgets. How come you use the exact same mouse since like 2004? And it's, it still works. It's like, a, it's like, it's become a part of me. It's like worn out, but my fingers, my hand, it fits like a glove on that mouse, Martin. So you know, I'm all about keeping tech alive yeah. and try to use tech. So that, that, if I had a child, when I bought that, that mouse, Martin, that child would be going to university right now. That's how old this mouse is. Wow. That is so, it's, it's kind of ironic too, because with you, everything's new and it's, yeah. <laughs> that's the, it's nice to see that you're loyal to certain things. I always try to fix tech. I'm, I'm a big believer about that. Like just recently I had a laptop where the battery was dead. So I went online, found the battery, and then I was trying to replace the battery in the back, Martin. And the, the way that it's different screws that they use for all these laptops, you have to have a special screw kit, which I happen to have, but one of the screws was stuck. And I ended up breaking a little bit of the laptop to get the battery, uh, the back panel off. And then once I put everything back together, it was kind of falling apart. So I ended up having to buy a new laptop, um, you know, but I did try to fix the old one. I'm, I'm a real big believer. But unfortunately, if you look at the manufacturers and the way that they make tech these days, even TVs, dishwashers, anything, 
they're just not built to last. And that's a really unfortunate thing because I'm a big believer of the right to repair movement. And I'm hoping that there's more pressure on these men, on these companies to build products that you can fix. Because a lot of times it's something simple that you need, like a battery replacement. And they're not really designed for you to fix. They want you to buy and buy. But hopefully they, you know, we'll see a, a change there where they're going to have more and more companies that will create that and, and at least adhere to the right to repair movement that we're seeing that coming out of the EU and slowly to come here in North America. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? And Ryan O'Donnell is with me and uh, we'll start. Are you okay with the Grand Canyon? Uh yeah, I remember in the Simpsons movie when they advertised the Grand Canyon 2, they're going to blow up Springfield and replace it. That's about as close as exposure to the Grand Canyon I've ever had. It's, you know, it's this thing where unbelievable pictures where you have no context of just how deep, how enormous it is. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things where I would love to see it at some point in my life. Probably the only way would be maybe on like a big road trip. Is it? Nevada, Arizona, uh, <laughs> where if yeah. only I had a device that could I, tell me Arizona, 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 Arizona? of course Arizona? it's Arizona. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, it was going to be in one of the deserts. It's the grand uh, Canyon. So, you know, uh, you know, maybe check out, go to a Arizona coyotes game at the mullet arena and then drive out to the grand Canyon. That sounds like a fun road trip. I would do that, but yeah, never been love to see it one day. Yeah. I've never seen it. And it's on my list of things that I need to see. And, uh, it, it just seems like something that the photographs don't do justice to. But then again, no. we have sort of a similar thing. You mentioned this to me during the break, uh, about drum Heller. And what did you call that area? Mm-hmm. It's the uh, it's the hoodoos, the right. hoodoos in Drumheller, which uh, they're not. Uh, it's weird. They're different than the Grand Canyon. The hoodoos are kind of like you know this big canyon uh, in Alberta where all the dinosaurs are found, and instead of these massive, almost like upside down mountains, which is what I kind of think of when I look at the Grand Canyon, the hoodoos are almost more like these really strange round stone pillars that kind of stand on their own. And it almost looks like the, uh, uh, it's almost like, is it like it was a, like a liquid that was frozen in time. That's kind of what it looks like. And it's pretty stunning, although there are snakes there. So you got to be a little careful when you walk. Uh, but, uh, the draw, the hoodoos are a very underrated, uh, Canadian geographical, uh, location that you should probably check out yeah yeah that sounds uh like a a great idea if you haven't been to the grand canyon but the grand canyon i mean the grand canyon is such a iconic tourist spot and uh, a north dakota teenager was just enjoying his hike at the grand canyon when the trip turned a little ugly the teen was in a very scenic spot moved out of the way so some people could take some pictures and that's when he fell more than 30 meters. Wide Kaufman and his mom crossing the Grand Canyon off their bucket list. But the souvenirs from this trip come in the form of scars. I was squatting down and hanging on to it. 
I only had one hand on it, so it wasn't that good of grip. And I lost my grip, and I started to fall back. Wyatt, falling nearly 100 feet off a cliff at Bright Angel Point Tuesday, for two hours, nearly 40 emergency responders working an intense operation to get him to safety. You know, two hours is an eternity in a situation like that, but in, when they have to rappel down the cliff and get him out of the uh, out of the canyon in a basket. Wyatt says he doesn't remember much. I just remember somewhat waking up and being in the back of an ambulance in a helicopter and then the plane to here. Bloodied, bruised, and broken, the 14-year-old bearing the scars of a survivor. The fall leaving him with nine fractured vertebrae, a concussion, a ruptured spleen, a collapsed long broken hand, and dislocated finger. The road to recovery for this only son is expected to be long, but the family says they're now preparing for a road trip home to make new memories for a lifetime. Wow, that was a, quite the laundry list of uh, injuries. He had all of them. He had all of the injuries, <laughs> all of them. Yeah, I don't, don't mean to laugh, but uh, I guess I am. Uh, but apparently, sadly, it's not uncommon. Uh, the Grand Canyon Rescue Team uh, said they respond to uh, more than 300 emergency calls every year, the search and rescue team, with reports ranging from illness to falls, just like Wyatt's. Uh, the park has asked for visitors to Bright Angel Point to always keep a safe distance of at least six feet, six feet two meters, from the edge of the rim. Uh, Grand Canyon guests should never climb over any barriers or fencing to, to get a picture. And you know about 12 people every year die at the Grand Canyon, though falling is not often the fatal hazard. Many succumb to natural causes, including heat and hydration related issues. Um, the odds nice. are dying of, of dying from falling off a cliff in the Grand Canyon, actually kind of low reportedly one in 1.8 million visitors. Yeah. Cause that's, they put guardrails yeah. <laughs> for a reason so that you don't fall off the mountain trying to get a, a stupid selfie. Uh, yeah, I feel bad. And that's the thing, too, is this kid uh, wasn't taking a picture. He moved out of the way so that somebody could take a picture. Imagine the guilt that that person has and yeah. probably the hesitation they will have every time they take a picture for the rest of their life in a place like that. Oof. Yeah. yeah well, I'm just happy he's alive. That's unbelievable that he survived that kind of a fall. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine two hours just to get him out of there. Yeah, Oof. we just got a text. Nine fractured vertebrae. He'll feel that when he's older. Yeah, which is yeah. probably and true. As far as I know, he's not paralyzed. Like the like mm -hmm. he's uh, like he's going to be able to walk away from this after obviously a intense and very long uh, recovery, but just an incredible story and. Uh, the fact that he even was awake to do the interview, I would be out. You wouldn't yeah. hear from me for weeks, even if I was I was awake. Like, no, 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 no. Talk to my dad. Yeah, and and talking about Drumheller as sort of a, a mini version of the Grand Canyon, the the uh, the hoodoos. Uh, Ron texted us to say, check out Canal Flats, BC, mini hoodoos. So there's probably lots of really interesting things that are. I mean, it's the Grand Canyon is called Grand Canyon for a reason. It's it's yeah, it it's the Beatles of canyons, uh, but uh, yes. yeah. So uh, how about this one? Are you okay 
with rescues. Oh, oh see, back to back. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I've never seen a rescue mission happen in person, although I remember this is like traumatizing for me. I remember when I was a kid, the fire department in Burlington, Ontario was doing a demo of how they get someone out of a burning building. And so they put, you know, somebody in a full suit, you know, protection and they're sitting like lying on a fake bed. And then they light this fake apartment they built on fire. I was convinced I was about to watch somebody die. And then, you know, they knock down the thing and then they spray the water. They come in and rescue us. This is amazing. I could never do that. And I hope I never have to be rescued, but uh, the like just what people do to to keep other people safe and it's, it's truly spectacular. It's a lot cooler than what I do. Yeah, and you know, in, in BC, the mountains, the the North Shore Search and Rescue uh, Association, I think a lot of them are volunteers, and they do some incredible stuff because people, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's usually people who go up the mountain completely unprepared. And then they get stuck there. So uh, you got to yeah. hand it to the people who, uh, who, who rescue other human beings and... Out of stupidity. Out of stupidity. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And then you see on the internet, you see occasionally uh, animal rescues that are, um, you know, really amazing. Uh, you know, very few people would hesitate to rescue a baby or a cute dog, obviously. Uh, but a guy from the U.S. risked his life to save a pretty big creature with a kind of a mean name, but uh, uh, it, it it's, was kind of a gentle giant. It's a whale shark. And uh, yes, you guessed it, it happened in Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. <laughs> Yeah. So let's hear that story. Uh, it's, a, it's about the rescue of a huge whale shark. When dive instructor Taz Feld says his wife told him, well, this nurse shark here was tethered to an artificial reef. The shark was entangled in fishing line with a big hook in its mouth. So Taz said he dove into action with his friend just with a knife and a pair of pliers. I grabbed a knife and I said, well, I'll, I'll take my dive knife and I'll, I'll cut it free and it'll go and it, that'll be it. Uh, but it, I wasn't worried about it at the moment. I was just worried about, you know, getting the thing off of the reef and making sure that it, it could go about its day. Um, un- relatively unharmed, that is. Taz is a brave guy. He told us that he sees a lot of sea creatures with hooks and, and tangled in fishing lines. He just rescued two eels this past week. Got bit by both. Wow. (laughs) That from 10 News. Uh, And even though this is technically a shark, it's a whale shark. And I think it eats mainly plankton. So, (laughs) Yeah, a lot of sharks are quite uh, like docile. They're not they're never going to bother you. There's certain types that are more aggressive than others. But still, like if I if I was diving off the coast of Florida, I saw a shark tangled. Yeah, uh, in that I don't care what type of shark it is. That I'm not going near the shark. You know, yeah. I don't. Uh, that's not. Mm-mm-mm. So I, I of course leave it to the Florida guy to do it. And I, I it, that is not an insult. That is a 100 percent endorsement. I think it's great that he rescued that shark, and um, I think it's great that he'll do it because I certainly won't. 
Yeah. Well, this shark it was really huge. I saw. I actually saw the video, and it, the the shark is massive, and it had this big, this big. Uh, it was like a looked like a big rope around it, and it was uh, it was it was fishing line and and netting. Uh, it, it was really, really, it would have definitely uh, killed this big, beautiful thing, which is probably, if it's not endangered, it's probably close to being in danger. And the hero said the shark swam off before he could remove the hook and took his pliers with it. <laughs> he said the hook will... <laughs> of course. Yeah, my pliers. Uh, hopefully, the, he said the hook will rust out and come free on its own. And the divers ended up clearing more than 100 feet of tangled fishing line from the area to protect other sea creatures from getting entangled um, from that same fishing stuff. All, that, all, the, all the, you know, the line and stuff. It looked like a big rope that was wrapped around it. So, uh, so good on them. Um, so how about this, Ryan? Are you okay with spinach i uh i had a spinach salad with my dinner tonight I really love spinach really yeah yeah i love spinach it's good for it's great for you i've never had like a spinach uh like smoothie and a lot of people do that because it's you know it's a super yeah. food yeah uh, but i just like i like spinach on its own i like it on sandwiches i like it on salad uh great wilted with you know eggs benny you know you can really put it with pretty much anything and uh you know it's just uh it's just a great all-around add to any meal kind of thing honestly it's not uh, it's also i find it on sale a lot because if uh i don't know why but in alberta lettuce is a million dollars it's awful like all produce anytime my dad from ontario visits he his jaw drops when he looks at the produce section which i mean i understand alberta is basically a province of of barley canola oil and dead and corn uh the corn is to die for by the way uh and so you know we don't really get a lot of fresh produce uh grown here so the prices are obviously more expensive and but for some reason spinach is always the first leaf to go on sale maybe just because people don't like spinach but i'm i'm happy with it because i'll buy a big tub you know those plastic tubs for like six five or six bucks on sale and make it last with every meal it's great love spinach Mm-hmm. And, and, and it is a superfood, as we know from, from Popeye, that if you, you know, you eat it and then you're, it's weird how your forearms become quite huge, but your actual biceps don't get much bigger. It's your forearms yeah. that get big. I never quite understood that with Popeye, but that, that's another thing. And also spinach is a great thing. If you go to one of those uh, buffets where you pile on the, the plate with food and then they weigh the food and you pay whatever it weighs, like at Whole Foods, you do that. Um, yep, spinach yep. is the best thing to get because it's the lightest food, but packs a big punch. Mm, that, oh, that's a, that's a good like value. It. Yeah, well, this is the deal with spinach. A package of spinach became uh, unvegetarian over the weekend in Michigan. Uh, this Mis- Michigan family bought the spinach and... Uh, they were shocked to see that the sealed container had a live frog inside it. My daughter was screaming. She was like, oh, my God, it's a it's a frog. And I was like, a what? She was like, a frog. Camouflaged in her sealed package of spinach, a frog. It was alive. 
and moving. Amber Warwick from Southfield doesn't want to forever be known as the frog lady, so she's keeping her face out of this. Just thank God I didn't eat the frog. This week, she was shopping at Meyer off Telegraph at 12 Mile, picking up a package of Earthbound Farms organic spinach. I didn't see anything. It didn't feel heavy or anything. I didn't feel anything wiggling. When she got it home, her daughter spotted it. Turns out it's a Pacific tree frog native to California. Amber immediately went back to Meyer with the spinach and frog in tow. We followed up with Meyer on Wednesday. They said the frog is actually alive and well and was relocated outside a new home by some of its team members. Well, I didn't want him to die, <laughs> but I didn't want him in my food. <laughs> that from Fox 35. They sound Valid. delightful, this family. And, and if, you yeah, were, right? if you were listening earlier, I had mentioned a can of spinach because I had read this story, uh, just sort of glanced at it, and I just assumed the spinach came in a can because of Popeye, because <laughs> growing up and seeing Popeye squeezing the can. But who, gave, who? nobody has spinach in a can anymore. Yeah. Would it, when it came in a can, was it wilted and like watery or was it, uh, it like was, I've never had spinach in a can before. It was the 1940s, probably. <laughs> Popeye. Okay, so it's probably just, I'm just, I've had frozen spinach that was kind of like that where you got to, you know, defrost it, but uh, yeah, I don't know spinach in a can. I don't know if I've (laughs) ever had it in a can, but, but I just, because of Popeye, the Popeye cartoon, I immediately went there. And, uh, and like I say, once again, that we know scientifically that if you consume spinach, then instantly your forearm becomes really, really big and your bicep kind of stays the same. But this spinach was in a sealed container, like a plastic container. Yes. And it, uh, and it had the little, little frog. And these, these people frog. from Michigan were so sweet about it. Uh, and Taylor Farms, the Earthbound Farms parent company, said an investigation has been opened. They say we are in direct communication with our customer partner and the consumer to express our apologies, the company said in a statement. Food safety and consumer experience are the top priorities for us. And we are looking into how this happened and how this can be prevented in the future. Now, I wouldn't want to find a frog in my spinach, but something seems to, when I think about that, in a way, it sort of seems like it makes the spinach seem even more natural. Yeah, I mean, truly organic. The only other, the only issue is that the frog's been in there a little while yeah. with the spinach, <laughs> and he has nowhere else to go to the bathroom. He has nothing else to eat. Yes. So it's you're you can't just wash that spinach you know? no it's got to be gone but i see where you're going i see where you're going yeah wherever they got the spinach from in the first place is probably a good source yeah and i yeah exactly i wouldn't eat the spinach because it's been the frog's bathroom for however long the frog has been locked up but but still it seems kind of sweet and because that family was so sweet about it and frogs little frogs are very cute i love little frogs did you ever catch frogs when you were a kid? I did it once. Uh, my 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 cousin had a, they lived on this beautiful house in Kempville, Ontario, which is just outside of Ottawa, and they lived by a little little ravine, and we would we would catch frogs and uh, you know immediately release them right. But uh, I, I love frogs. Yeah. In fact, I'm I'm currently working on a uh, uh, I play a trading card game and I'm currently building a deck with nothing but frog characters. It's hilarious. 
and my friends all love it. There's some millennials love frogs. I uh, maybe I'll, I'll explain why a millennial on the radio, but there's just something about frogs that my generation can't get enough of. So I'm glad that the the very nice family from Michigan uh, did not kill the frog. They let it free. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 